Let's keep in touch, let's keep in touch, keep in touch with me. Drop me a line any old time, you know that I... Hi, I'm Mel. And I'm Amy. Welcome to Talk to Us at Bounce English. Hey Mel, who do we have with us today? Our guest today is Beth Butterfield. Beth is a teacher at Rabat American School in Rabat, Morocco, where she has been teaching for almost two years. Prior to that, she was at the VOA school in Minneapolis, which I believe is Volunteers of America. And Beth, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, I came to teaching actually a little bit late in life. I went back to school to complete a master's and teaching certification program at Hamlin University in St. Paul. And I was like, I think close to 40 when I did that uh, because I had spent years prior to that, you know, raising my son, working part-time in real estate. I was a flight attendant for a while. Um, I have a lot of interests. And finally <laughs> landed, on, landed on international teaching um, as sort of a, I don't know, you could maybe say second chapter or third chapter or fourth chapter. And I'm, I have to say I'm loving it. You know, I think that story is going to be relatable for a lot of people. Certainly for me, when I got into this field, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And like you, I have a lot of interest. But when I found teaching, I don't know, just something in my heart was like, yeah, I like this. This is good. So I'm sure a lot of people will relate to that. So what inspired you, you know, after all of this time to, to go down the English language teaching route? What, what inspired you? Yeah, that's a great question. I can't say that it's really one thing. I, I, it fit a vision, I would say. My entire adult life, I have had a passion for travel and a passion for just other cultures and kind of an international lifestyle. And I saw teaching internationally as just the perfect way to achieve that. Um, you know, having a career that was meaningful, um, that was important to me also. And so teaching felt like it fit that. And then the international aspect of teaching English abroad and being able to get into, you know, the international school system just sounded really like a dream come true. And so I, I, and luckily there was a program here in St. Paul, one of the colleges had a program, uh, one of the few actually in the country of a master's of TESOL. They were actually working with the TESOL organization to craft this MATESOL program. And so, and it just happened to be basically in my backyard. Uh, so Perfect. the stars kind of aligned and yeah, and it just, it just made sense. So how did you end up in Morocco? Oh boy. <laughs> Well, let's see. I will try to turn what could be a very long story into maybe a medium length story. It's fine. Um, it's a podcast. We have like 45 <laughs> minutes to fill. So okay, it's good. Okay, cool. cut it if it's boring. Well, I was, I had been at Volunteers of America. Th thanks a lot. <laughs> I had been at uh, VOA High School in Minneapolis that I was in my fourth year. And I had already overstayed what I had planned for, for that school. When I first got the job there, I thought I'd be there for two years. That became three and that became four. And finally I was like, okay, this has got to be my last year here. And it wasn't because it was a terrible place to work. It, it, the, my, my colleagues there were amazing. They were very gifted, very talented, passionate teachers. 
but it's a, it was a challenging school. The, it was a, a contract alternative school. It was for you know, students who had fallen way behind in their credits at the um, public schools, the Minneapolis public school system. And so they were coming to us you know, lacking a lot of the skills that, that many of us just take for granted and lacking a lot of the, to be honest, privilege that most of us take for granted. And so it was a rewarding job, you know, seeing these kids get their high school diploma and, and feel that success, but it was also exhausting, you know, pulling yeah. these kids along with it. It's, it's a very exhausting job. So after four years, I was like, okay, I can't, I, I can't I'm done. So um, you're saying kids, what age were the, the students? They tended to be 16 to 21. Okay. Yeah. At 21, legally, they, they aged out. So if they didn't graduate by 21, they, they, they could go get a GED or they could go to the adult school, which was a night school, but I did not teach at the adult school. So, yeah. So then I, so then it was like, okay, well, you know, I got into teaching because I wanted to teach internationally is, is now the time to do it. And I kind of put out some feelers. I, I reached out to some of my professors at Hamlin University, you know, got their feedback, uh, reached out to some friends of mine that had taught internationally, including Melanie, and was encouraged strongly to pursue that. And Just I found out it. about, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I found out about a job fair that was in Iowa that's put What's on. What's the right? job fair? It's, uh, it's. We're down by Northern, Northern Iowa University. The University of Northern Iowa. That one, yes. And um, it's the biggest one in the Midwest. And so directors from international schools from all over the world fly in. And I mean, they're probably not doing it that, it's probably all on Zoom this year. But right. when I was hired, they, they physically fly in, interview you, and it's this like, very intense, you know, you might have 10, 15 interviews in, in one day and you just go and interview, 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 interview with the idea that they, they, they want to hire at that job fair. So you, you can expect to walk away from that job fair with at least one job offer. So that was my goal. I knew that Robot American School was going to be there and it just kind of ticked off a lot of boxes for me. One of them being a French speaking country. That's, you know, I, I have a bachelor's degree in French. And so I thought, okay, I can work on my French. Um, the proximity to Europe for traveling was great. Plus just the Moroccan culture I was really intrigued by. And I really hit it off with the director and he hired me at the job fair. Awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. Great. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. I think because your your route is a little bit different to mine and to many of the people that I worked with and that I did my BA and then I got a certificate teaching, but you got a master's in teaching and then you got your teaching certificate for Minnesota, which I think if I'm correct, is something that enabled you to be able to work in international schools abroad. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, because I have looked into that and it seems I would need to get a teaching, uh, like a state teaching certificate to do right. that. So, yep. okay. And so you are teaching now a different group of students. How does the group of students that you're teaching now compare to the group that you taught in Minnesota? Wow. It's really interesting because I, I expected 
these students to be privileged, which they are, but I did not expect them to have so many of the same issues that my students <laughs> in the Isn't that funny? Isn't that yeah, funny? It is. I, and, and it, it's, you know, they, they have some of the things that my students in Minneapolis struggled with, my students in Rabat will never, ever struggle. Right. They will never struggle to put food on their table. They will never, you know, they will never struggle with poverty and, and that kind of, that kind of thing. But they're, they do still have other issues. The, the, we have a counselor at our school that's very busy, mm. you know, helping students and especially right now with COVID helping them with, you know, keeping up their mental health. And so it's, it's interesting. It's like money and privilege doesn't make your life perfect. That's for sure. It, it, it is true. You know, I actually, I teach a student who I would say is extremely privileged in any aspect you can think of. They have this privilege, but what I have found teaching them is that they have all the same problems that, that anyone who doesn't have those advantages have. They just have sort of upgraded problems is what I would say, but, but they're really dealing with the exact same things. It's, it's really quite an eye opener. Exactly. And, and one of the downsides is I, I think the tendency can be to just throw money at problems. Yeah. So for some of these kids, you know, they, they're, they're dealing with that, that, that there's been a lot of money thrown at the problem, but it hasn't actually solved the problem. And mm. so I, I think us as, as teachers, we can't solve those problems for them, but we can definitely help take a different tack than just throwing money at it. And uh, is this an expat school or are you teaching local students? It's both. It's about 30% local Moroccan students. And for Moroccan families, it's like a private school. They have to pay tuition. Mm -hmm. um, but for embassy kids, they're, they're, they're national, uh, you know, their embassy will pay the, the tuition. So we have, of course, American students, we have Canadian, we have um, Swiss, we have uh, French, Spanish. I, I wanna say it's, there's over a hundred nationalities of students. Wow. Oh. And all and just, like high school age or what we would term? No, it's age. actually a pre-K-12. Oh, okay. Wow. Yes. yes. But I'm only in the secondary school. And do all the kids get along? Or, or is it like the Moroccan kids stick with each other and then the expat kids or the British kids hang out? Or I don't see that kind of stratification. Um, what, what I see is that the, they, they definitely do mix and mingle. And so, which, which to me, I see that as really beneficial for my English learners because it, the, the Moroccan kids don't just all stick with, with other Moroccan kids. So they're speaking playground English, you know, they're, they're, speaking, <laughs> they're, they're Bix, they're Bix English. Um, they, they pick that up pretty quickly because they do have English speaking friends that they, that they make. Which is pretty that's cool. really cool. Yeah, that's really cool. So how has this year been? Talk a little bit about the impact of COVID-19 on your teaching, uh, what it's been like to be in Morocco during this experience. Um, just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, we started, we, we all came back to Morocco after summer break, and we really didn't know if we were going to be on campus or not. Uh, we were waiting on the Moroccan government to make an announcement. And I, I, I want to say they finally made their announcement just one or two days before we were supposed to come back. And so that actually delayed us for a little bit. But their announcement was all the schools in Morocco are going to be virtual unless you don't want to be virtual. 
So we're like, thanks. Helpful, very helpful. <laughs> yeah. So what our school had to do was offer both, basically. We, we were on campus um, with all of the safety protocols in place, the masks, the shields, the, um, you know, the uh, maximum 20 students in a, in a classroom. But then there were some students that did not want to come on campus. And so the teachers are having to do both. How has so, that been? Well, I think it's been pretty challenging. Mm. Um, I, I'm grateful that I don't have a lot of students that are off campus. Most of mine are on campus, mm. but pretty much every class, you're going to have a Zoom running with at least one student on there who is an off-campus student. It's not ideal by any stretch of the imagination. I, I, I really hope that next year we don't have that off-campus off option anymore because uh, what we're seeing is the students that are off campus, for the most part, are not getting the education that the on-campus students are getting. How do you manage teaching? Because it sounds to me like you're doing the Zoom class simultaneously as you're doing the live class. How do you manage that with a student or several students on Zoom? I mean, because I have not had to do that. And I'm really quite grateful because I feel like it's, it's when I think about it, I think it's too hard. I feel like it's like two different things you have to do. So I'm just wondering how you manage that. It's tricky. And I have to say some teachers manage it better than others. It's really easy to just forget about the students on Zoom. I'm especially sure. when you have like, let's say 18 kids right in front of you and one or two kids on Zoom yeah. and you get to talking and having a discussion, it takes a really conscientious teacher to remember to turn, look at the Zoom and engage those students. It sometimes doesn't happen. And sometimes the students will click off their camera, even though it's supposed to be on. And then, you know, they're not really there anymore. They, they're, they're either physically not there or they're at least they're disengaged, even if they're maybe sitting there. So that's really challenging. For me, I have one student right now who's off campus, but it's a, it's a very small class. It's a class of four kids. And so I pretty much just carry my laptop around with me. That <laughs> reminds me to like engage with that student. And luckily yeah. she is a very outgoing student. Mm. So she will, you know, speak up. And, you know, when I ask a question of the class, she, she will voluntarily, you know, answer. Um, but that's an advantage of hers is that she's outgoing. For students who are not so outgoing, like I don't think I would have done well with that as a high schooler um, because I was quiet and reserved. Um, you know, you, ha you have to be a self-advocate and what sixth, seventh, eighth grader is a good self-advocate? It's, it's rare, so. Yeah, you know, it almost seems like having the option of both in a single classroom is doing a disservice to both in-person and online students. And, you know, because having worked with Melanie on this, teaching online, it takes a different skill set. And if you're focused on that, you're developing materials, you're thinking about how to engage with your students in that format. But, you know, having to split your split your energy between the two just seems like, well, like you said, very difficult, but also really kind of a, a disservice to both both sets of students. It is. It is. I mean, there's really no way to, to like sugarcoat it. it. It's, it is far from ideal. Um, yeah. But I, I, I think we're figuring things out as we go. Yeah. It, is, it is like literally the putting together the airplane while you're flying situation. 
This is not anything that any of us trained for. And so we're just figuring it out as we go. And I think it really takes a teacher who knows their students really well and understands their individual needs. And come on, in, in the real world, that's probably not gonna happen for every single student if you're a teacher of 100 students. I'm interested in the fact that you have 20 students maximum in your socially distanced classroom, which still sounds really high to me. What was the number before COVID? Uh, it wasn't that much more. Uh, before COVID, our classes tended to be about 20 students anyway. Okay. So, yeah, it didn't, it didn't impact us too much. Now, here's another thing that we're doing at our school that I really hope we don't have to continue doing next year is so we, in order to keep potential outbreaks isolated, we have students in cohorts. So in each grade level, there's two cohorts of maximum 20 students. So like, like for example, in eighth grade, you know, we have, we have what we call 8.1 and 8.2. So we have two, these two cohorts and those two cohorts, those kids can never interact. Wow. And they cannot leave their classrooms. That's so hard. So, oh yeah, my God. Like in the old days, the pre-COVID days, you know, the kids would travel from classroom to classroom, right? Of course. And teachers would have a, a home-based classroom. Now it's the opposite. Now the students stay in their home-based classroom and the teachers travel from cohort to cohort to, to, to minimize exposure. And when, when a cohort gets, when somebody in a cohort gets COVID, gets a positive test result, that entire cohort has to stay home in quarantine. They can't come back until they've tested. And, and any of the teachers that had um, exposure have to stay home and they have to test. Luckily, that's only happened a handful of times so far, but we had several positive tests right before the winter break. Mm. So we're, we're not really sure what that's going to look like when we get back on campus. But my, my heart goes out to these kids. Can you imagine being a, a sixth grader and having to stay in your seat in your classroom all day long. They, there's no, the cafeteria is closed down. They have to bring their lunch and eat their lunch at their desk. They do get to go outside for recess, but that's kind of it. I mean, they, and they have PE, but it is a challenging situation for those kids. And I, I just, I really feel for them. And it's, it's, it's amazing that they haven't actually had more problems they're they're coping in an amazing way i have to say do you think it would be better for them if they were just 100 percent online or do you think it's better for them to be in the classroom it's better for them to be in the classroom yeah because we were 100 percent online back last spring from march middle of march until middle of june when our school year was over we were 100 percent online morocco was shut down everything was shut down and um, that was really hard for most of the kids. They, they, they did not engage well. It took a very special kind of student who could, who could show up every day, sit down, do the work, ask the right questions. It, you know, it, that was, that was, yeah. It, I, even, though, even though being on campus is, definitely has its challenges, it, I think it is preferable to having students being isolated in their homes. Do you think it's better for them purely from the isolation standpoint, or do you think that has to do with how they learn too? Oh, I think it's definitely both. 
Okay. Yes, the isolation is bad for their mental and emotional health, but it's bad for their for their teaching or for their learning, sorry, and our teaching, because that's not how we learn. That's not how, I mean, we, people learn through engagement and, and, and playing with the thing that you're learning, even if it's playing with it mentally. And that's just really hard to reach kids or anyone really through this, you know, through a, a Zoom, through a computer. I don't think that you have the same level of engagement and effectiveness. Plus your, your toolbox is maybe, I mean, I think it is restricted somewhat. And of course it's very different. Um, you don't have all of the, the strategies available to you that, that we as teachers rely on. And yeah, we're creative and we may do and we you know, try other strategies, but the tried and true, a lot of those we, we, we couldn't use. So, so that's really interesting because I think that you can have really effective online lessons, but I also think it's not for everyone. And the other thing too, is that I'm thinking to myself that you have now done a little bit more of both than other people that I've spoken with who have really sort of stayed online since March time. And you now have kind of done both and you are feeling like actually in person is better. Yeah. So yeah. I'm wondering what, cause I think, I think we can't unring the bell. If this is, I keep saying this, that, you know, even when it's safe to be hundred percent back in the classroom, I believe there will still be a demand for online teaching. But I'm wondering what you think the future will be like and what, what your opinion is on all of that. Yeah, um, I agree with you that online lessons can be very effective. I, uh, it just, it takes a different skill set. Definitely. Definitely a different skill set and a different, yeah, just a different um, approach. Having said that, I actually really liked teaching online, some aspects of it. Your toolbox is different, but there are some new tools that you can use and that can make teaching, you know, fun in a whole new way, trying things that you haven't tried before. And yeah, there were aspects to, to teaching online that I enjoyed. I think you're right. We can't unring the bell. There will be students who will decide that learning online is the way for them. I think that's a great thing because when you, when you think about you know, maybe students who are bullied. Those, the, these were some of the students that we actually saw really blossom in lockdown were uh, students that had issues with being bullied. And all of a sudden they, they were more free to you know, be themselves and engage in ways that maybe on campus they did not feel they could. Um, so I think it's great for that. It's great for kids who are maybe very, you know, live in very remote areas. They can, they can access just the same level of education that somebody in the middle of a big city could access, right? Mm. So that's great. I hope that we don't continue with this, you know, most of my class is on campus and three kids are off campus. I don't yeah. think that that's ideal. I think what would be better would be entire schools. Like, okay, this is a virtual school. That's just how they are. That's how they operate. And so those teachers can focus on the most effective teaching methods for being online. And this school over here is on campus and that's the way it is. The other thing too, is I think this is meant to be sort of a hybrid method, but 
it's not really hybrid. It's more like, okay, we're going to be in person, but we're also going to have these couple students who will be following the in-person lessons on Zoom. And that's not really hybrid because as you said, like it's kind of a different toolbox when you are teaching online. There are a lot, there's some overlap for sure, but honestly, I kind of think there really isn't that much overlap. I think you have to rethink a lot of what you're doing to effectively teach online. And if you're saying, okay, we're going to be in person, that's fine if it is safe, but then we're going to allow these other students to be on Zoom. I kind of agree with you. It might make more sense to have, for example, a dedicated online teacher or online aspect. The other thing, too, is that hybrid would be, say, uh, Tuesday, Thursday, our classes are online. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're going to be face-to-face. -face. And then you're doing both. Personally, I think that could be the way forward because I have experienced a lot of people actually, you know, look, kids and their parents miss people going to school every day, for sure, 100%. But I have talked to parents who definitely like the fact that they do not have to drive their kids to school five days a week and would be very open to, say, three days a week or two days a week so that children are still getting that social interaction, but it's not as much of a grind. I wonder if we might be able to do that in the future. I don't know, because I think once things are safer, there will be resistance to that. People will want to just go back to the way it's been done for hundreds of years. I don't know. Uh, what do you think the future holds for us on this? I think that's really exciting, actually. And I, I have some ambivalence about the charter school movement in the United States. However, yeah. I could see that as a niche that the charter schools, the better charter schools, the well-run charter schools could fill. Um, you know, bigger public schools, especially really, you know, big districts like Minneapolis, you know, they're, they're slow to change and it can, it can be, a, you know, it can take a long time for them to pivot on things. A charter school, which just operates all by itself and is its own district, that could be a place where we might see some of this kind of innovation happening. And I, I think that's really exciting. If it's done well and thoughtfully and with the right intention, not just like, oh, this is the trend, let's do this, but, but with, with real intention and real thought toward like, why are we doing this? What are the goals for this? I, yeah, I, th I think it could be a really fascinating situation and could possibly even alleviate some of our um, issues with not being able to, to, to find people who want to go into teaching. You know, if somebody who had never considered teaching before all of a sudden realizes, hey, maybe I, you know, I could, I could teach from home. Yeah. That might, that might open up doors for people who normally would not um, consider it as a profession or, or consider um, even like full-time employment, but if they could do it from home, maybe. Yeah. I hope so. I, I hate to tell you, I'm sure there will be people who are like, well, that's the trend. That's what we're doing. <laughs> but we all know, know I, education does tend to suffer from that uh, um, syndrome. So they're definitely, that, that, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and then the charter school issue is so interesting because like the true, the true origin of charter schools is actually great. It is this idea of creating a school that, you know, 
niche fits the needs of people in a way that a public school might not be able to. But of course, as we know, the other side of that um, and the side that has been exploited, mm -hmm. it, you know, public schools in the United States, at least, must take everyone. Even if you are a special needs student, even if you're a second language student, even if you have no money, you must be allowed into that school. And that is actually a major reason why people don't like them because it's, it's harder. It's harder to meet the needs of that wide group of people. And it's much easier to handpick your students based on students who will get the test scores that right. you want them to get um, or who will go along with the discipline you want to enact, even if it's a little bit scary. Um, so yeah, that's interesting because as charter schools can be used for good and evil. I would say, <laughs> I would say. Oh, definitely. I mean, this, the, the school that my son graduated from uh, for high school was a charter school. And it was, I have to say, one of the most amazing schools I've ever seen. But they didn't have any English language learners. They did not have an ELL program. Yeah. So, you know, it was definitely not perfect. I think, I think maybe we need some legislation about, around that. Could That could help to you know, remedy that, that if you're going to be a charter school, you have to also accept, you know, any student that applies, maybe that would level that playing field a little bit. But I completely agree with you that that, that is an issue that makes charter schools, it gives them a huge advantage over um, public schools as far as yep. like being able to look good, being able to, you know, make themselves look, you know, if, you know fit a certain image that they want to craft and public schools that, that that's not that's not what they're in the business for yeah i think a lot of people don't realize that either because you know when you see the test results of a charter school they they could be a fantastic school they could be amazing um but it could also be that they were able to cherry pick the students that they had in that school knowing that they would do great on the test similarly you might have a public school that is rated very poorly for test scores and maybe the kids do do badly on the test but it could be a really important place in the community that everybody knows the teachers and everybody you know like the kids parents went there and it, it is like a place that is really useful so it's an interesting issue that could be something covered another time i don't know um, okay one more question what are your predictions for the future let me get out my crystal ball. <laughs> Man, do I wish I could do that because um, it feels like 2020 has just taken the whole bowl and thrown everything up in the air and we're just kind of waiting to see what comes falling back down on us. What a great description. That is actually, we are the little pieces coming back down to the ground. We're going to. I, my crystal ball says we're going to. So. Well, I mean, like any time, uh, any moment of great um, upheaval, there's great opportunity, right? Yeah. So I hope that that's what we would see come out of this. We, we have an opportunity to rethink the way that we do education and, and a lot of other industries as well. And so, okay, you know, we, we need a 21st century model anyway. We're still operating on a 20th or even 19th century model, maybe it's time to 
upset that apple cart and and really think in a in a forward thinking manner. So I, I I'm hopeful. I, I am hopeful that you know that we will see some some innovation and we will see um, some new ways of thinking and new ways of meeting student needs because student needs are not going away. Uh, if anything, we're going well to see them be you know become more and more prevalent, and we need a way to address the needs of all students. We have an amazing variety. And that is a huge challenge and it's a huge opportunity as well. And it's a great thing. I've often thought about that. If the world were filled with people exactly like me, it would actually be really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> but we like to definitely use more Melanie. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. But I'm number one. That's right. You know, Beth, earlier you talked about Morocco as being a place that you just found interesting and the culture you found interesting. What are some of your favorite moments about being in Morocco, be, being within that culture? Uh, I don't know. I just really am excited to hear a little bit more about living in Morocco. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite things to do is go to the Medina. Um, so the Medina is the old town. Every city in Morocco has a Medina. And it's neither it, funky nor cold. It is not. <laughs> well, no, it can be funky. Definitely can be funky. Those of a certain <laughs> age will get that. Yeah. Those who aren't, congratulations <laughs> on being younger. So bad, it's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because that's where you get the like the handmade products, the local artisans. You know, when you think of Morocco and you imagine like the spice market and you imagine um just those like very moroccan the pottery and the leather goods like that's you're gonna find that stuff in the medina and the sellers in the medina are they're so welcoming and happy to have you there especially during covid they're very happy to see you there the moroccan people are just wonderful they're just welcoming and gracious and it's it's a really a nice place to be a foreigner um, because they they treat us very well. They're they're very happy to have us there, and so you just feel very um, embraced, very embraced by the local community. And the Medina is one place where you can really have fun with just the the beauty of the Moroccan culture really shines through in the Medinas. <sighs> I can't that wait to go there. Oh, I know. Now, because you speak French, are you like, are you able to communicate with French? It's when I'm thinking about sometimes other folks go to teach in abroad and they might not be able to speak the local language, but you have that ability to, in some cases, communicate in the local, local language. It makes a huge difference because English is not widely spoken in Morocco. So, so if you don't speak French, it, it can be challenging. I mean, luckily we have our modern technology and people whip out their Google Translate and they can get by just fine. But I'm really grateful to, to be able to communicate in French. It's, 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 it's helpful when you're in the Medina and you're trying to negotiate a good deal. <laughs> What's been your favorite season of the year? Oh, that's a good question. Oh my gosh. Well, Morocco is fascinating because for, for being a, you know, not a huge country, it has pretty much every climate. So where I live is very much like, like Los Angeles as far as the climate goes, but you can go up into the mountains and there's snow and you can go to the desert, uh, you know, the Sahara Desert. 
it, you, you name it, that, that, that kind of climate is there. So where it's I like live- California. Where I live is very <laughs> much like California. And so there is not a bad season. It's, it's, it's beautiful all year round. It doesn't get super, super hot. It doesn't get super, super cold. We can have our doors and windows open all year round. I'm very grateful for that. And now you're sitting talking to us from St. Paul, Minnesota, which is probably a little colder. And it's, and it's snowing right now. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about at the beginning of the interview is that you two have known each other for many, many, many years. Yes. When did you first meet? Since third grade. Third grade. I, uh, you know, I believe Beth mentioned that she was reserved. Well, I am not reserved. So that's how that happened. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Yes. Yeah. It's amazing that we have kind of ended up, you know, both being international English teachers, but in very different ways. And Yeah. yeah. But you both were always, I mean, as long as I've known you both, always, like you said earlier in the interview, always really interested in travel and culture and language. You both just really love language. And I think that's been a really unifying trait of your friendship for many, many years. I remember, and I don't know if you remember this, when we were teenagers or um, maybe middle school that we used to asked this question like why were we born in the United States we could have been born anywhere and you know it's like just a complete accident of birth which is you know I think still a good way to look at the world that you know that's just unearned privileged or lack thereof is is purely an accident of birth and you should remember that it's it's so true and and I I think living in Morocco where you know it's a developing country and there are there is great privilege there there's great wealth there but there's also great poverty there and and realizing yeah i kind of hit the jackpot being born in the united states even though it certainly has its problems but it's it it does give you a level of privilege that i i think i did not realize quite as much as i do now living in morocco and i i tried to you know appreciate that privilege and not you know, swing it around and hit people with it. Um, <laughs> There's a great David Sedaris quote where he talks about like being from America. He's like, Americans abroad, I'll, in the back of our minds, we all just think, well, we'll just see what the consulate has to say about that. <laughs> I, that might be David in particular, but maybe not. <laughs> a little green is true. Oh, well, hey, is there any, how can people find you online? Is there anything online that you want to promote? Um, I know you have your blog. Um, we can also put up the link for Volunteers of America since that's that's a pretty cool program. Yeah, I mean, you could put up that. You could put up, you know, the Robot American School, um, RAS.MA, if they just people just kind of want to see um, what the school looks like and a little bit more about it. And if they want a little bit of vegan inspiration, they can go to my blog, thewellplantedlife.com. Great. Yay. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed that. I did. Thank, Thank you, you Beth. Big old crush. Come on, baby. Let's keep in touch. Come on, baby. Let's keep in touch.